Thank you for stopping by at the Movie Marquee. Our podcast reviews well-known movies and contains spoilers. The podcast may contain mature subject matter and mature language. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy the show. Quiet on set. Places, everybody. Welcome to the Movie Marquee. Today we'll be looking at the last film in our four-film series of Sidney Pollack with the movie The Firm. I am joined with my co-host, Eric. I used to caddy for lawyers and their wives on summer weekends. I looked at those long, tan legs and just knew I had to be a lawyer. The wives had long legs, too. And Ted. What do you think I am around here, a fucking night watchman? And I'm Ken. And hey, Eric, wouldn't it be funny if I went to Harvard and you went to jail and we both ended up surrounded by Ted? I mean, crooks. Wouldn't it, though? Uh-huh. You're pretty uh-huh. funny. I'm a funny guy. So, Eric, do you have the particulars of The Firm? Yeah, let's talk about The Firm here. This uh, movie was released on June 30th, 1993, with a budget of $42 million. Took in $270 million total, $158 million domestic, and $112 million internationally. So it was very, very successful. Has a runtime, two hours and 35 minutes. So this one will keep you going. The Firm stars Tom Cruise as Mitch McDeer, uh, Janine Triplehorn as Abby McDeer, Gene Hackman as Avery Tolar, Hal Holbrook as Oliver Lambert, Terry Kinney as Lamar Quinn, Wilford Brimley as William Davisher, Ed Harris as Wayne Terrace, and Holly Hunter as Tammy Hemphill, and David Strahan as Ray McDeer. And of course, Gary Busey as Eddie Lomax. We can't forget about him. <laughs> In full Gary Busey full Gary Busey. It is he bad. went the full Gary Busey in that role. <laughs> yes, he For did. All two, all two minutes of screen time that he's got. Mm-hmm. Full Gary Busey. So Eric, what did the uh, critics think about this movie? Well, Ken, the reviews were pretty mixed. Critics either loved it or they generally hated it. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it was 75% certified fresh at 75 with an audience score of 64%. Our good friend Roger Ebert gave it three stars. Uh, Roger Ebert said, but with a screenplay that developed a story more more clearly, this might have been a superior movie instead of just a good one with some fine performances. The LA Times loved this movie. They said the result is a top drawer melodrama, a polished example of commercial movie making that manages to improve on the original while retaining its best selling spirit. Variety Magazine said, rebounding from the biggest career flop-flop with Havana. Wow, that's harsh. Sidney Pollack has done an ultra-pro job in giving spit and polish to the star-driven, surefire commercial project. The Washington Post said, Cruz was born to play company man, and the role is an opportunity to sum up his old roles and transcend them with his most potentially emotional work. Wow. Entertainment Weekly said, no one is going to confuse the firm with art, but it's high cholesterol virtues a story that keeps you guessing. A dozen meaty character turns are enough to send you home sated. Okay. Now I'm hungry. Now we're hungry. Now let's get to some of the people that weren't too crazy about it here. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone said, director Sidney Pollack zapped out a taut thriller in 
Three Days of the Condor, so he liked that one. But the firm is mostly flab in the manner of Pollock's Elephantine Havana. So he's comparing it to Havana. Jeez. Uh, Real Views says, Very little of what made the written version so enjoyable has been successfully translated to the screen. And what we're left with instead is an overlay long two hours and 34 minutes, to be exact. Pedantic thriller. Wow, Ooh, wordy, wordy. Yeah, and Tom, Time Magazine says Tom Cruise heads a Tony cast in a bestseller movie that is firm at the start and infirm by the end. Rolling out the end reviews here is New Yorker Magazine says the supporting cast provides centripetal force. Too bad the center cannot hold. Mm. These, these are wordy reviews. Very wordy, <laughs> but Very I, wordy. you know, I find myself gravitating again towards Roger Ebert. Yeah. I, I, He's probably definitely the biggest influence on me as far as how I view movies. So it's interesting when we do these and I hear the reviews and it's like I hear a lot of exactly how I feel. And you know, it's amazing. Uh, YouTube has Cisco and Eber at the movies review of At the Firm, and we were watching it. Yeah, Cisco liked it too. We talked about this in the past. They, for whatever reason, Gene Cisco does not pop up on these Rotten Tomato reviews. And he doesn't have a website like Roger Ebert does chronicling all of his reviews, which is kind of unfortunate in my opinion. True. Ted, you have the plot for The Firm. The Firm tells the story of Mitchell McDeer, played by Tom Cruise, an aspiring law student who is searching for a law firm after he graduates at the top of his class from law school. He is courted by every major law firm and has many opportunities available to him. However, the firm of Bendini, Lambert, and Locke, a small firm from Memphis, Tennessee, woos Mitch and his wife, Abby, played by Jean Triplehorn, into accepting their offer. After accepting the law firm's offer, Mitch is tasked with passing the bar exam. While studying for the bar exam, Mitchell meets his mentor in the firm, Avery Tolar, played by Gene Hackman. Avery is an aging lawyer who appears to work on the fringes of the firm and the law. Along with passing the bar, Avery makes Mitch accompany him to the Cayman Islands to meet with an exceptionally prickly client. Before leaving for the Cayman Islands during a late-night work session, Mitch is approached by two FBI agents. They make it known to him that they are watching him and the firm, while making it clear they do not believe the recent deaths of two firm lawyers were accidents. Mitch, shaken up, still goes to the Cayman Islands with Avery, and they meet with the client. While meeting with the client, Mitch proves his worth and impresses the client and Avery. After the meeting, Mitch snoops around Avery's condominium and discovers hidden boxes of documents pertaining to the lawyers that have mysteriously died recently. That night after dinner, Mitch leaves the club where Avery is dancing to go back to his condominium. Along the way, Mitch interrupts an argument between a man and a woman on the beach. He helps the woman who has sprained her ankle, and she shows her gratitude to Mitch and seduces him into cheating on his wife. When arriving back in the States, Mitch, who is now very suspicious of the firm and their clients, goes to visit his brother in jail. They agree that Mitch must keep a low profile if he is to investigate the law firm. Mitch's brother connects Mitch to a private investigator. Mitch meets with the private investigator, and he agrees to look into Mitch's concerns. After snooping around and asking questions, two men come to the P.I.'s office and murder him while his secretary hides under the desk. The secretary then contacts Mitch to let him know that people associated with the firm murdered the private investigator. After being confronted again by the FBI after the murder, the FBI tries to make a deal with Mitch to get him to testify against the firm and provide them with documents to strengthen their case. 
Mitch is now faced with the reality that he will lose either his freedom or his law license helping the FBI. He informs Abby of the developments and she is horrified, but is hurt the most when Mitch admits to her that he cheated on her. She tells him that she is going to leave him and go to her parents' house. Mitch has a meeting with a client and the client reveals to him that the firm has been overbilling him for years and is not going to allow it anymore. This provides Mitch with an idea of how to take down the firm for, for the FBI and still keep his law license. He devises a plan with the PI secretary to blackmail the FBI into giving Mitch what he wants, his brother out of jail and $750,000, while providing them with enough information to take down the firm. The FBI agrees to Mitch's demands. After getting Mitch's brother out of prison and transferring the money, a guard at the jail snitches to the law firm's head of security that Mitch's brother was released and left with FBI agents. This lets the head of security know that Mitch has struck a deal. After confronting Mitch of this information, he runs from the law office with the head of security and his henchmen close on his tail. While Mitch is on the run, the PI secretary is in the Cayman Islands making copies of all the records in Avery's condominium. Avery, who was drugged by Abby, has no idea they're copying the files. Mitch's whole plan hinges on the mob clients of the firm signing a release that would allow the government to use the documents showing the illegally billed hours in a court proceeding. Mitch gets the mob clients in their hotel room and convinces them that they should sign the release because he has all of their financial information from the files in the Cayman Islands and they would remain secret as long as he is alive. They agree and the FBI takes down the firm. Abby comes home to Mitch and tells Mitch that Avery was murdered by the firm and that before she left, Avery told her that the firm had staged the whole cheating event to blackmail him. She forgives him, they pack up their car, and they head back to Boston to start a new life. Thank you, Ted, for the plot. Our first question is the usual first question, which is, when did you first see the firm? We'll start off with Eric, since this is your director. Eric, when did you first see the firm? Uh, I saw this movie probably mid-90s. Wasn't in the theater, but probably on video. Saw it a couple times in the mid-90s. I'll be honest, I haven't watched this movie in at least 21, 22, 23 years. So it was really cool to rewatch it a couple times. I did enjoy it. It's been a long while for me. How about you, Ted? Well, I've been trying to think of when the first time I saw it. I know I read the book back when it came out in the 90s. So I would have followed shortly thereafter by watching the movie. So it would have had to have been around there. It would have been definitely on video. I wouldn't have seen it at the movie theater. That's for sure. I know that. For And I'm assuming fact. completely different than the book? We'll discuss it. The book is quite a bit different than the movie. Which, which one's longer? Because this was a pretty long movie. Um, nice. Yeah, that goes into a lot of my opinion of the movie. But the book is a little bit more tight as far as this, how the story progresses. We'll put it that way. As far as when I first saw it, paid cable, saw it a lot during the mid to late 90s. Watched it probably all the way through the early 2000s. But it's probably been a decade since I last saw this movie. And of course, this is right after A Few Good Men. So I do remember wanting to watch this movie because, well, Tom Cruise was just doing a great job at that particular time. If you want to get rid of Far and Away, you had Days of Thunder, Born on the Fourth of July, Rain Man, The Color of Money. He was kind of on a roll. There's nothing wrong with Far and Away. Come on. I'm happy it's Far and Away. Come on. He was gold at 
that time. He was Turner definitely gold at that time. time. But it's kind of interesting because in The Firm, he looks much older than he does in A Few Good Men, which we reviewed before. And this is just a year after. But he kind of looks like he's aged a little bit, probably because of the character. I think he looks exactly the same. Do you? I don't think Tom Cruise has aged since The Firm. Hell, he, think he looks the same in the Jack Reacher movies. He might look more tired. His character looks more tired. And maybe that makes sense because he's a lawyer. Maybe that's who... because he was part of this movie. Yeah, probably so. Oh. Maybe, he heard, maybe he heard the score. On that note, we'll talk about things we really liked. Ted, why don't we start off with you? What are some things about this movie that stand out? One of the major things about the movie that I like, I love Gene Hackman every time he's on screen. I think this is a quintessential Gene Hackman role. You know when he comes on the screen that his character is going to mean something. And I'm saying that because I like Gene Hackman quite a bit. I think he's a good actor. That's definitely something that uh, is a definite positive for me in the movie. How about you, Eric? What stands out as a positive for this movie? I'm going to I'm gonna jump on that bandwagon, too, because I think Gene Hackman is a, a phenomenal actor, and I think he's really, really good in this as well. I think the whole cast overall is really good. There's great flow to it. I mean, there's a few things that, you know, we'll talk about it later, that few actor choices that maybe Wilfred Brimley, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that one later. I have not read the book. I know we're going to talk about that later, but I'm thinking of maybe giving this one a read. The movie was a little long. You know, they probably, they could have cut a few things made a little bit shorter it was a little confusing to follow it took me two times to really get back into the groove i'm it wasn't like three days of the condor confusing but it definitely had some avenues that you had to kind of think about uh, to follow the movie but yeah i'm with ted i mean i love tom cruise but hackman i love hackman in this right hackman is really awesome and pretty much Anything he does, except for maybe the replacements. That's for another podcast at another time. I do agree with Gene Hackman. I think the supporting cast is a very bright spot here. Ed Harris uh, is incredible. Ed Harris I agree. is at his most Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> He's very Ed Harris in this movie. And Gary Busey is very Gary Busey. So. Gary Busey is the full Gary Busey here. He is wide-eyed, crazy-eyed, looks like he's coked up. Perfect role for Gary Busey. Oh, Let's it be is. honest. It's for, what you it, picture yeah. Gary Busey as being a sleazy detective. It's right. tame. They, it oh, it yeah. is very tame. They said, basically, Gary, go in and be yourself. <laughs> yeah. And he was. He'd be like, Gary, but, play you as being a private eye. What would you do? That's exactly. it. Exactly. And that's the direction. As far as a directing choice, he's in it the exact right amount. Because if he was in the movie anymore, it wouldn't be good. That would not be a good idea. He serves the purpose that he needs to, and he's out. So that's a positive for me, too. I think there are some directing choices here that are really good. There are some that can definitely question. But I think the major complaint that I would have going forward wouldn't necessarily be with Sidney Pollack. It's going to be with the writers of this movie. Interesting fact about Gene Hackman was in his contract, I guess, he usually requires that his name come before the title of the film in all promotions. But I guess Tom Cruise also had that in his contract. So Gene Hackman decided not to have his name on all the promotional material. It only was until like the movie started where you see his name before the title of the film. That's very interesting for Gene Hackman to back down at that particular time, because at this moment, Tom Cruise is probably the heavyweight of the box office. 
clearly. By, yeah, by doubt. far. And then there's also Holly Hunter. She's very quirky in this role. I mean, she does play a lot of quirky roles, but I think this is her at her quirkiest. The funny thing about that, Ken, is when I watched this, kind of let the credits roll through, I completely forgot it was Holly Hunter, probably until about 10 minutes into it. It doesn't feel like a typical Holly Hunter movie that right. you'd expect her to be in. You're, she really played the part well, and I didn't even know it was her to begin with. I'm like, oh yeah, it is Holly Hunter. Well, she's got the accent going. She's got the wig going. Yeah, at least I think that's a wig. It looks like a wig to me. One thing about Gene Hackman, Avery's character, originally that was supposed to be a woman. Sidney right. Pollock wanted that to be a woman and actually wanted it to be Meryl Streep. And he wanted Tom Cruise's character, Mitch, to have an affair with Meryl Streep's character. So that would have been interesting to see how that would have played out. But I'm, I'm very happy they stuck with Gene Hackman because, like we just said, every scene that he's in, he basically steals. Holly Hunter is good in this movie. She was nominated for an Academy Award. She's only in the movie for like a total of five and a half minutes. This goes back to a discussion that we had with Tootsie as far as Academy Awards and how you feel about that. I don't know if her performance was deemed a, an Academy Award. Was she supporting actress? Yeah. Like you said, five minutes? Yeah, you need a little well, look, bit more time. Look at Judy Dench, though, and Shakespeare well, that's in Love. W- yeah, that's what All I was right. going to say. There is that out there. now. What, one minute of screen time, I think it was? It was it even a minute? I love Dame Judy Dench, but I don't believe that that was necessitated there either. I don't know. She's very good. This goes into one of my complaints with the movie. You have all of these really good actors. Like Tom Cruise is this character and they essentially, the way it's written, he's written like a Tom Cruise character. Okay. Because he's right of that time, like a few good men, like you had said, Ken. I mean, essentially the roles are almost interchangeable, essentially. (laughs) But the further you go down here, there's some choices. Like I don't necessarily care for the use of David Strathairn as his brother. I love David Strathairn. I think he's an amazing actor. I don't think that this isn't his best work. I think it feels like he's much older than him, even though I I don't think they yeah. are much older, but they seem older. Yeah, he has more gravitas to him than playing that character. I like the actors he put in as the law firm, the heads of the law firm. I thought Hal Holbrook did a really good job in his role, but I don't buy the David Strathairn thing. And he's only in the movie for just a brief period of time. And a character actor like that, he doesn't really fit there. He's not given much to do. That's no. the problem. It's a very blah character and he comes off being a little bit of a, and I hate to say this, a wuss. And I'm not trying to, anybody who goes to prison and unfairly goes to prison from what they're talking about in this movie here but they just talk about how the fact that his character isn't going to last in prison much longer and they don't give him enough to show that or at least show some range in that character there's two ways you can take that you're not going to last in prison much longer the firm is going to kill him yeah that's one (laughs) of the things before that, they were talking about he needs to get out. In fact, Gary uh, Busey's character, Eddie, was basically said that he had used as much of what he had to get to this point. It sounded like his character was about ready just to like bite the farmer or something like that. Just snap, yeah. His character is a victim of the writers. His character in the book plays much more of an integral part in the whole inner workings of the story. Ted, do you have more of a backstory in the book about his brother? Yeah, and he's much more of a vital part to the entire scheme that Mitch does to the whole plan that he puts together. His brother plays much more of a role in that than what he does in the movie. Okay. 
And we can get into the whole plan that Mitch puts together. We can get into that and how contrived and just absolutely bizarre it is and how it's all pulled off, which is purely cinematic. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of a mess. And I think it starts off with the relationship also between Mitch and his brother because of the fact that at the beginning, it seems like Mitch is ashamed of him. And he, he is. doesn't like he doesn't love his brother because he doesn't go see him. But from what they say, he got into a bar fight and was kind of like defending himself. And if he wasn't Golden Gloves boxer. boxer or whatever the case may be, he wouldn't have been in jail. The fact that he didn't go see his brother, pretended he never existed, not just to get the job, but he almost seemed like he didn't want him at all. And it didn't play well because then when he goes visits him, all of a sudden he has this brotherly love for him and, and there wouldn't be anything he wouldn't do for him. So that's just weird. All of a sudden, and it's like a snap of the fingers and his attitude towards his brother changes. It's never explained correctly. Those are all aspects of the book that you get that is just glossed over. But that's the, very typical, obviously, when a book... Of course. Is, you have to gloss over stuff. The character development is not as rich... For a two and a half hour movie? For those two characters and their relationship. But you're right, Ken. It, you don't get to the fact why there's this sudden change. It should have been established before that he had a brother and they were close. And he's just hiding this because he knows he needs to get a job. We don't get that in the movie. There is a whole bunch of stuff that could have been put into the story by the writers Avery is Mitch's mentor, but there's that other creepy blonde-headed lawyer that is supposed to be his best friend, I guess? That that whole thing... They really glossed over that friendship or whatever that was. But it, it comes off creepy. In the book, the firm is a lot more sinister. The characters of the law firm, they're scarier. Towards the end of the movie, he sells Mitch out because his wife calls and says, hey, I saw Mitch at the tour. And and next thing you know, they know where he's at. So he basically sells him out. If he was really his friend, he wouldn't have said anything. And they probably would have not even known it unless his phone was bugged. You know, they spent way too much time on that that mud island scene where he's running around. I mean, that was like 20 minutes. Is it me or is that monorail the absolute slowest Slowest. monorail (laughs) in the entire world that Tobin Bell's henchman character can run to catch up with it? Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty bad. He's in pretty good shape. But that's the thing is a lot of this is silly. A lot of this is slow and it doesn't need to be slow. The henchmen, I didn't feel afraid of any of these guys. First of all, you got the guy who got shot in the leg and you're going to send him to chase after Mitch. Right. What? He's he's got a limp. How the heck is he going to get him? He's retired, man. He's done. Some of the choices that they make to go after Mitch, just really dumb and stupid. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I was going to save this. Don't bring it on. Okay, do it, man. The, do it. We're going on to this the whole chase at the end, okay? You have the limping guy who's been shot in the kneecap with a 357 Magnum. He runs after him, but then Tobin Bell's character, and the reason I mention him is because now he's a famous actor. He was Jigsaw in the Saw movies. He chases after him, but it's Wilford Brimley's character that finds Mitch out on the street. You can tell when there's a bad comparison between a stunt double and the real actor. But when Mitch corners Tobin Bell's character and then Wilford Brimley shoots shoots Tobin Bell's character by accident and kills mm-hmm. him. And then Mitch starts to fight with the guy who's supposed to be Wilford Brimley. Just kicking him. <laughs> that guy looks absolutely zero like Wilford Brimley. 
Yeah, especially when he falls on them. That yeah. whole scene, that is the worst look-alike stunt actor that I can't say that I've ever seen, but it is really bad. The fact of the matter of Tom Cruise beating up Wilford Brimley really doesn't do a whole lot for me because Wilford Brimley is the Quaker Oats guy. Let's be honest, but nowadays everybody knows him because he's the diabetes testing supplies guy. Kick him for Cocoon the Return. Just keep on kicking him for that. Wilfred Brimley just died recently, didn't he? Yes, he did. Within the last few years, yeah. Yeah. That whole decision of making Wilfred Brimley the head of security, the the chief (laughs) bad guy. I don't have a problem with him being the chief bad guy, but I don't think he has the muscle around him to make it seem sinister enough. When he has Mitch, when he's showing him the pictures and everything, I feel like he needed like a couple more people that were a little bit more huskier, a little bit more intimidating. I just didn't understand that. There was also the other older gentleman, might have been one of the partners or one of the lawyers, but he was also with his character. I just felt like for the security that they had, for as much money as in dealing with the mob and stuff like that, I would just think that that your henchman would be a little bit more sinister looking. That's oh, all. and how about the mob characters? You couldn't get any more stereotypical than that, the huh? Paul Servino. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was the other uh, thing. It's like Paul Servino's coming off where he played the head mob guy in Goodfellas. And since when do <sighs> mob just, people fly commercial? Right? <laughs> yeah, pick you up at the airport. Yeah. They, Come on. <laughs> those decisions. It's, and I love Paul Servino. I think he's a great actor, but completely misused here. I don't know if this is necessarily a fault of Cindy Pollock's more as it is a problem of the writers. I mean, I understand it's it has to be difficult when you're given a book and told to adapt it to a screenplay. That has to be incredibly difficult. But I got to think of 1995... You being well, 1993, 93. in 1993, that you have a lot of control here and that you're able to put a lot more input than, let's say, when we reviewed Three Days of the Condor or we reviewed The Way We Were. You don't have that street cred, but now you're in 1993. He should have a lot more power. So I'm not going to blame it all on the writers. I think he has to take some credit for some of the problems in this movie. Yeah, he's not a fly-by-night director. I mean, it's kind of like the president. You know, the buck stops with the president for all mistakes. And a lot of times it falls on the director. I mean, come on, he did uh, Out of Africa, Best Picture in 85. He's got some street cred. He really does. Think about this, the character, the henchman, the blonde, silver hair, blue-eyed henchman. It's another trope. I don't mean to interrupt you, but what is it with the 90s and being afraid of albinos? (laughs) Every bad guy in the 90s has to be an albino. This guy's not an albino. He's just got blonde hair. All of a sudden, this guy turns into an albino. What the... With his character, though, he's in a scene where he's getting into an airplane. Where is he coming from? Where is he going to? Because I thought he was going to the Cayman Islands to take care of Avery. And he's actually still in Memphis going after Mitch. So I'm confused here. Where is he at? Why is he hopping on a plane? Where is he coming? Where is he going to? And then all of a sudden, he's one of the ones chasing Mitch. It just didn't make any sense to me. I thought he was the one who killed Avery. Well, he was. He he went to the Cayman, and then he came back. But it seemed like that was really quick. You drown uh, Avery, and then you, you take the flight back. Why drown Avery? I didn't understand that part at all. It didn't seem like Avery was like not on board with what they were doing. But like he said, I don't know who she was. He got played, so they killed another lawyer. How many lawyers are you going to kill in this movie to cover everything up? To me, it just didn't make any sense to kill Avery. He wasn't in on it. He let it happen, man. Or he got duped into letting it happen. Mm-hmm. Well, they all got duped. 
So, I mean, should everybody in the law firm get killed because they all got duped? I just feel like they were just a they little ne- happy. They never establish the mob as being the main antagonist behind the firm. And that's definitely the writers. Because we don't know why the lawyers got killed in the beginning of the movie, really, anyway. We know it had right. something to do with Chicago, but we don't know exactly what they got caught up in. And we don't know exactly why the one female lawyer that the firm has ever had gets killed off. I guess it's because she was probably doing some affirmative action. We just don't know. And it just gets kind of... You have to go with the the idea that she was killed because she also tried to get out because of the ties to the mob. What the writers do here is incredibly lazy. They're basing one line off of a stereotype which is, oh, if we mention Chicago, everybody's immediately going to think the mob. And that's incredibly lazy writing. This is how we're going to establish that these guys are bad because we're going to make it that they're the the mob, but we're not going to say that they're the mob. We're just going to let everybody know that they're from Chicago and then everybody's going to know that they're from the mob instead of establishing the fact that these guys are killers. It doesn't sound like the mob no. killers. It sounds like the firm is the killers. It seems like the real bad guys here are the firm and the mob just happens to be mixed up in all the things that the firm is doing. It's seems like a role reversal and it just plays out to being just stupid no the firm is the muscle of the mob i mean the mob is their main client and then they have like what like 10 or 20 percent legitimate clients all their money is going through the mob they're just a mob shell front company if you will well that goes back to what i was saying about how the muscle looked for the firm it didn't look like much muscle it looked pretty pathetic with the firm's security detail and they couldn't these, even handle even handle Mitch. These guys aren't mob guys at all. The two guys that are hired by Wilford Brimley. No, character. they're they're firm. They're complete firm people. They're firm henchmen. You go to the Cayman Islands and all of a sudden your boat explodes. Is that pretty much how they're killing everyone off? Like you just said, the security at the firm are the muscle for the mafia, which is downright stupid. Well, no, they're I mean, the muscle for the firm, not the mafia. Mafia's got their own muscle. But the, the way the movie plays it out, it seems like the firm has the muscle and there is no muscle with the mafia. At least we don't see it. And I mean, we even at the end when Mitch comes along and tells his plan to the mafia, they're basically like, OK, you know, if this was a true mafia movie, they would have just killed Mitch right there and that. Well, I mean, Mitch would have been dead. In your um, synopsis, in your plot, you made a good statement when you said, hey, Mitch, let the mob know that he has has all their files he has copies of them and as long as he is alive he will protect his client privilege with them because you're right he would have blown his head off right when he walked in the door they were talking about he's like if i get my fucking hands on i'm gonna kill him and then oh look who's at the door you know conveniently and then the guy with the cigarette i can't think of his name the other mobsters like you know let him speak as mitch is really starting to explain his plot it boils down to hey i've got the goods on you we've made copies of them they're off site as long as i'm alive and he didn't come out and say it he said hey right i am your lawyer for life attorney client privilege as long as i am alive that privilege lives wherever i go right i'm a ship without a port correct protecting his life but here's the thing he gets up to i guess the secretary they're the mob there's no i know at the door yeah. you know checking yeah. this guy out beating the crap yeah. out of him before he even gets to the secretary it's just no I know. It's a little too convenient. That's the problem with the movie. There's a lot of too convenient issues here. Can't argue with you there, Ken. Can't argue with you there. I completely agree as well. It's just, it's a lot of lazy writing. Like I said, I'm not discounting the fact that it's got to be incredibly difficult to adapt a book into a screenplay. But this is not the only John Grisham book that's had 
trouble being put onto the big screen. The mm-hmm. client comes to mind. The client right. and the runaway jury. Runaway jury. Another Hackman flick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a, a Time to Kill, which still has one of the most manipulative endings in the history of movies, where they tried to make Matthew McConaughey's character out to be Atticus Finch. John Grisham's books have a notoriously hard road of being put onto the film. And I don't know if it should be that difficult. He's a very accomplished author. I've read quite a few of his books. But like I was telling you before we were recording, John Grisham for me falls in a step below Stephen King, but a step up from Dan Brown, the writer of The Da Vinci Code. To me, I don't think that it should be that hard to put his movies into movie form, but it seems like that these writers went out of their way to make this screenplay so extremely contrived and confusing. It didn't need to be that way. And I understand where you're coming from. The problem I have with this, and I'm going back to saying this over and over again, it's a two and a half hour movie. They took a lot of time stretching certain things out that really didn't need to be stretched out. They focused on certain things way too long, which could allowed for a little bit more background for everybody. The other movie that I'm thinking about is The Rainmaker. It's mm, another, that's another one. Yep. That's another movie where it's like, it could have been so much better. These are movies the Pelican that, Brief, too. But you know what? I did like The Pelican Brief. I liked The Pelican Brief more than I liked this movie, I would tell you, right off the bat before we get into our reviews. But The Pelican Brief is basically this movie, but done better. And it came out the same year. If I were to choose between the two, I think The Pelican Brief got it right. They never seem to get the tension that they're looking for. Because there should be some serious tension in the movie where you should feel afraid for Tom Cruise's character and Abby's character. And it just never seems like that they're ever truly in danger. It never feels like their life is ever in danger. You're absolutely right. right. And Tom Cruise does a great job with this role. We say this about all these characters, right? He's playing Tom Cruise in this typical Tom Cruise character. But, you know, you were saying about Tom Cruise, but how about everybody else involved? Everybody should be like worried about what the firm is going to do to them. As much as I like Gene Hackman in this role, the only thing I felt that came out of his character was that his wife no longer loved him. And most of the stuff that he was doing was because his marriage didn't work out. You know, I would have loved to seen a little bit more of the firm was the reason for his unhappiness. We don't get that to like right at the end. And I would have liked to seen a little bit more of that build up until the end where he says whatever the firm did to him. They... I wish they would have never have mentioned that it was his wife. In my opinion, that's where, for lack of a better term, they cut that character's balls off right there. Any of the substance that Gene Hackman built up in that character with those couple of lines. I guess they wanted him to be a really lovable character at the end. They wanted him to be one of those, you know, Avery was, Avery was such a good guy. You know, I just want to let you know, maybe he was corrupt and stuff and maybe he was lonely and all that. But he was a good guy. Why does he need to be a good guy? Why does anybody in the firm need to be a good guy? And in the book, he's not. He is a scumbag right up to the moment that he dies. You shouldn't feel good about Avery's character. Avery set Mitch up to have an affair on his wife. He's hitting his wife throughout the whole time frame. Oh my God, that's kind of creepy too. Okay, so what is the deal with that? So he tells his wife, oh yeah, the firm set Mitch up to have the affair. Hey, Mitch still had the affair, regardless if it was set up. So what does that justify? It really doesn't. 
That's the other stupid right? thing about this yeah. movie that's convenient. Oh, how convenient that they set him up with one girl out when they're having dinner and he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. But he happens right. to walk down the beach. He happens to see this possible rape thing happen. They know exactly where he's going to go after that. They know exactly how he's going to act. The firm just seems a little bit too much to know what his character is going to do. It's not necessarily that the firm sets that up. It's the fact that Mitch goes from leaving that bar and basically shooting down the lady that has been hired to set him up to not even 10 minutes later. Yeah. Walking down the beach, he abandons his morals, all of his morals in 10 minutes. He doesn't even fight it. Doesn't even fight it all. It's like, that's a huge jump for the character. And at that point, it's like, I don't give a crap what happens now to Mitch. He's kind of a bag too. Well, like what she says later on, she's like, one night you're away from me and you cheat on me. One right, night. Right. One night. At least if it was like a series of months or something like this was all going on, like they were fighting for months or something, then I could probably buy it a little bit. But no, he's gone one night and then all of a sudden he's already cheating on her. And it didn't mean he anything. I don't even, know her name. He hasn't even went 15 minutes about being unhappy with her. And, and <laughs> he's not even 15 minutes from shooting a person down to let's go ahead and do it. Here's the other problem I have with this. Afterwards, they're on the plane, and Avery is basically like, oh, by the way, your wife called. Right, and I told right. her, And I told you were just you're walking on the, the beach. beach. Why would she be calling Avery? They have separate rooms. Why would she be calling Avery? They didn't have that kind of relationship up to that particular time. It just made no sense. Like, again, these convenient things. Crazy. Why even bring that up? They would have been better off just not even saying that she called. Yeah. I mean, and actually from there, I think just throws out reality and stuff. He goes and visits his brother in the pen and then he goes back home and tells his wife what he did. But the firm doesn't realize he went to go see his brother in jail. Yeah. What the heck? I mean, again, another convenient thing where they must have not been listening to it at that particular time. And how do they not realize on the interview and on his background check that he doesn't have a brother and his mom's a, a whack job? You'd think this firm would be able to do that kind of uh, background uh, check. Backdrop. Yeah. If Wilford Brimley's characters to be believed as this mastermind as far as a head of security. It's never alluded to whether or not, but you have a feeling that he's connected to the mobsters in Chicago in some way, that he doesn't have all of those bases covered. That takes a lot of the teeth out of that character as well. Avery cuts him down. Any sort of gravitas that that character would have had as the head of security, Avery basically calls him the night watchman. Pretty much, yeah. My quote from the beginning of the podcast, Avery just cuts him down to size. Yeah, but he also says after that, he says, I get paid to be suspicious when I have nothing to be suspicious suspicious about, which tells me that he's supposed to be this thorough guy. He even says things like throughout the the movie, he's like, Mitch is basically doing what we thought Mitch would be doing. You know, he he makes these comments here and there that he's playing right into their hands. And it just to like you said, Eric, to overlook that he doesn't even have a brother. Right. That's not hard information to find. No. I mean, I understand that the Internet isn't a big thing, but even Mitch does a search for the dead lawyers on on the Internet. So do you think that security would do the same thing about him? As much money they invested in him and they only chose one lawyer and they're very particular about the people that they bring into the firm. They weren't very particular here. 
They really just said, hey, do you have family? Yeah, I have a mom. I don't see her. The other thing about his relationship with his mom, his brother asked, hey, have you talked to mom? Oh, yeah, a few months ago. I, you know, she's with, I guess, a different guy uh, every day of the week or something. Yeah. I don't know. You just became a lawyer at a firm and it, and you only been there for like not even two months and you haven't talked to your mother yet about it. I mean, it's just little things like that where I catch and I'm like, then you're telling me that you haven't talked to your mother about you becoming a lawyer. It's a very sloppy movie. Let's be honest. It's very sloppy. Was there anything else that you guys actually liked about the movie? I like seeing some character actors that have popped up in quite a few other things. Ed Harris is really, I think he's really good in his role. But the guy who plays Ed Harris's sidekick, he is the bartender in Pulp Fiction at uh, Ving Rhames' bar. Okay. Um, and then, of course, Tobin Bell plays one of the henchmen. And then the other henchman, they call him the Husky henchman, I believe in the credits, is Dean Norris, who was a star of Breaking Bad, along with Brian Cranston. So those are a couple of really interesting actors that catch me. Oh, yeah, okay, I, I know where he's from. But I really did like Ed Harris quite a bit. Here again, I think he's playing a stereotypical Ed Harris character. Oh, very much. I think a lot of these actors are playing stereotypical characters that they've played before in some shape or another. Well, Tom Cruise is the same person in every role he's ever done. Let's be honest. Pretty damn close. Yeah. I mean, like I said, that you could exchange him and A Few Good Men in The Firm. They're essentially the same character. Except the in A Few Good Men, he plays softball. In The Firm, he plays basketball. So we're talking about these actors. One actor we haven't really talked about is Janine uh, Triplehorn playing Abby. What, what did you guys think about her? Eh, she wasn't bad. I mean, not like uh, memorable. I mean, but she wasn't too bad. Yeah, she was good. I don't know how well she really sold. And here again, it could this is, could be a victim of the writing. You never really get the sense that she's putting anything on the line by going down to meet Avery down in the islands. You never get that sense that she's really in danger of anything. Because you really don't think that Avery's going to whatever hurt her. Because no, he's kind of no. got a thing for her. Clearly I mean, from the time he met her. Wouldn't so. it have been better if maybe the firm went to her and kind of threatened her with something? I mean, maybe threatening Mitch's life or something to the extent where she felt like she was scared. I mean, we're, we're trying to buy that when he comes home and he turns up the volume and tells her everything that's going on in the firm. And then right. we see her reaction and she runs out the door. And, and then Tom Cruise does his Mission Impossible run uh, down the mm -hmm. street after her. I'm not buying that. It doesn't make any sense. If you actually felt the stakes, that there was teeth to any of this. I do like that scene where he turns up the volume on the song, and that's how you get him telling her. I thought that was a really cool way to do that. I actually really liked that. I thought that was pretty ingenious. But here again, it's hurt by the fact that are they really in danger? Well, even before they do that, he gives her the whisper sign. And she goes, just so you know, we don't have any kids. And then the music goes up. Don't you think the firm, if they're listening, is saying, why did she just say that? I mean, there's just so many things here that is just stupid. If she gave him a look, like after he told her to be quiet, like, why are you giving me the shush look? Then I'm okay. But it's just these certain lines that they give her to throw out, which might go back to your writing problem. It's just not good. 
And then these fights that they have. We were just talking about the fact that he had an affair over a brief little fight the night before. It wasn't even a big fight. It was a small little fight where they were actually being actually kind of nice to each other. He even brought her a rose and stuff. Then they had this little spat. And then all of a sudden he has to cheat on her. I didn't even think that was a fight. Right. I guess this is two ways of different looking at something. I figured that was all said and done. Mitch is supposed to be on tilt. His world is supposed to have been rocked by the fact that these two federal agents knew who he was, knew that they were watching him. And then that causes him to think. And that's what keeps him away from Abby and gets him in trouble. But he makes that okay. We're supposed to buy that he's still shaken. And that's why he looks for the secret files in Avery's condo. Other than the fact that he's now supposedly supposed to be so shaken that these federal agents are watching him. I don't know. It's just... Let me ask this question because he's given the keys to unlock the door to see the files, but he's given those keys because he has to get a like a bottle opener or something like that that is right. under no, lock and key. In the mini bar. He's looking for food. In the mini bar. So that's why that's under lock and key he, and it happens to be to the, on the same key. He, right. went, he went to the, the left instead of the right. No, he knew what he was doing. He knew that I he think was he going, knew he was doing what he, he knew was what doing. He was doing there. But here's the other thing. He also then spills his beer and leaves that oh. all over the place. Doesn't come back to clean it up, I don't think. So Avery doesn't notice that there's like beer all over the floor when he comes back later on. It's just another convenient thing. They even show you, hey, look, he left all this beer on the floor and he walked away. Going back to Abby, they cut the legs out from underneath her character too. With one line, everything is supposed to be made okay by when Avery tells her they set him up. That's just what the firm does. And so that's going to make everything okay. Like, I believe you brought this up, Eric. I did. Now she's okay with it, the fact that he cheated on her. Ted, I will say, I think even if he doesn't tell her that, I think she goes back to him. And here's the reason why I say that. Because she does go all the way there to, to save Mitch from this whole thing blowing up in her face. And she wouldn't do that unless she truly loved him. Oh, and then, no, she really still loves him. I think to why she does end up going back to him. It's not that stupid line that Avery gives her on the Grand Cayman Islands. It's the fact that he was forthcoming with it and she didn't have to find out about it from him being blackmailed. And this is one of the Tom Cruise's better parts of the whole movie. I actually felt like he was pained yeah. by having to tell her. That's another really good scene where you feel his pain. We were talking about things to, that we liked about the movie. That's another part of the movie. I think that Tom Cruise does really well is he portrays that stressed middle part before he figures out that the billing is the way to to take down the firm that whole part where he's trying to figure everything out he actually plays that really well and you do feel kind of bad for him but he takes credit for his own actions and i think that's why she goes back to him and i like the fact that you brought up that scene because i think that's one of my favorite scenes if not my favorite scene because of not only how he's reacting but how she's reacting i think this is her best performance is how she reacts to him telling her all this i believe both of them in this i believe his hurt and i believe her hurt in their interaction this is might be the only time in the whole movie where I believe their relationship. And I think it's because we're thrown into this relationship from the start. We really don't see much of them in love. It almost feels like they're like roommates and that they're just in this together. But when I see this scene with him telling her what happened, that's when I really feel like they're husband and wife. She comes from money and he's poor. Mm -hmm. Another another Tom Cruise character trait from a lot of his movies, like from Cocktail, one of the big ones. That nice tie it up at the end. 
with Avery that the firm set up the affair. That just kind of killed it for me. I was like, what? Come on. You can't end it like that. And now everything is all hunky-dory. I mean, uh, that scene really upset me. It irked me. The thing you said just now, Eric, about her coming from money, they never played that off. They never make it seem like she is from money. Unless she told told us that in the movie, I would have never guessed she would have came from money. She even says in the limo, if you've been in one limo, you've been in the mall. Right. And that comes from somebody that would be from a poor background. That wouldn't be somebody saying that that was that came from well-to-do or rich background. A lot of holes. You know I love this director, man, but I'm with you. There's a lot of things that you just kind of have to check out when you're watching it. I think there's too many things you have to check out. This is a swish cheese of a movie. It's very hard when there is such a, a top-selling, number one New York Times bestseller book, and you make a movie on that book. Now, if you've read the book first, and then you see the movie, it's a completely different comparison than seeing the movie and then reading the book. Whichever way you look at it, you're contaminated. You're contaminated by comparing it to the movie first or the book first. The book is nine times out of ten. The book is usually superior to the movie. Does it hurt that we've watched this multiple times? Because I'll be honest with you, 1993, 1994, me, loved this movie. Me too. And then it seemed like when I watched it this time around, basically 28 years later, I'm picking this thing apart. And is it mm-hmm. is it fair? Because if we look at what the critics said, I mean, you had Roger Ebert like this movie. I'm not saying that I don't like this movie. What I'm saying here is, and I haven't even got to the score yet, but what I'm saying here, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's just so much now that, that I see that I didn't see in 1993 1994 that i see now and is that unfair towards this movie well you're bringing up a problem that i've personally had to tackle in a couple of our other podcasts many a movie many a movie yeah am i being fair that's a hard question to answer and it sounds like i'm sure you've tackled this in another one of our podcasts too ken but it seems like you're tackling it here with the firm i would say this and i'll bring some of this up when i do my final review or my final grade The movie has its problems. We're looking at it from a different point of view now because we are having to come up with and give our opinions about things in the movie. So we are finding things that work and don't work and things like that. So it's a different eye than looking at it as... I've got my bucket of popcorn and my soda and I'm in a movie theater watching the movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's too different. Is the movie enjoyable? Yeah, the movie's enjoyable as long as you don't sit and analyze it like we're doing. Like you said, Eric, if you've read the book, this is going to be a disappointment. However you break this down, I'll be perfectly honest with you. The only John Grisham book that I actually liked as much as the movie is A Time to Kill. And that's because... Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson do an amazing job along with Donald Sutherland in that movie. And that's probably one of the easiest of John Grisham's books to put into a movie form. There's so many moving parts with the firm that it doesn't come out to the movie. As far as movie versus book, no movie is ever going to be as great as your imagination. When you're reading a book and you can visualize in your mind how the characters look and their movements and everything, there's no movie on earth that's ever going to be comparable to that, in my opinion. That's true. That's why I watch movies before I I read the book. (laughs) So I don't have that problem. So talking about problems, and I know, Ted, you want to take a swing at this one. And we've taken a couple of swings in the earlier movies that we reviewed for Pollock. The score. Here again, there are some issues here. Do you want to tackle that, Ted? We're all in agreement on this one. 
this is the worst part of the movie. Mm-hmm. This score is so manipulative. I hate it when a score is manipulative and the score is telling you how you should feel. This is the time you should feel excited. This is the time, ooh, things are getting tense. So we have to have that tense music or it's happy. Everything's happy now. We do a little happy chords. This is one of the most egregious versions of this that I've seen in a long time. And the fact that it's annoying because... This guy only used a piano to make most of the score. When they have the tense music, I couldn't get that out of my head. I do like Sidney Pollack, but this is my personal opinion. When a director has to use the manipulative score like that, it's my opinion that he knows the tension isn't there that should be. And so they use that to try to heighten something that's missing. And if that's the case, it needed to go back and be rewritten. To use that score the way that they use it here, it's so horrible. I can't anymore. I can't even talk about it. It's so bad. It sounds like to me, first of all, the piano playing sounds like something that you would play in the mid 80s, first of all. It's just some chords. I've watched some documentaries on how movies are made or scored, I should say. And they, they sit there and they're watching the movie or they, they're playing it against the background. What I think they almost did here was one day he just sat at a piano, hit record and just started playing whatever. And then they took all those recordings and they go, hey, that'd be good here. That'd be good there. And that's it. I don't think there was much thought put into the score because like you said it was just a piano and i felt that he probably just spent one day he was just probably just going off the cuff and just hitting the keys the only way he wanted and and then this is what we get the beginning i'm okay with it and even at the end of it i'm okay with it it's everything in the middle that i'm like why do we have this crap here i'd rather there be no score i'd rather be just dead silence it would be better with no score because that's the other part that you have. It's supposed to have these Memphis bluesy type of feel to it. And it doesn't feel like the blues at all. How he gets some of the noises from the piano is he's actually plucking the strings inside the piano. Instead of playing the keys, he's plucking the strings. Some of these composer guys are eccentric. I understand it. You're quirky. It doesn't fit here. We were talking offline about this. It reminds me of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the main character who, who produces the score for TV shows. And he basically is making fun of the fact that he hits certain keys. Like the guy who's crazy is about to enter the door, you know, and kill all these people. Let me hit the sound. It's not even a score for movies. This is probably something that would be better for like a TV family drama where you don't put so much money into like a TV show as you do a, a movie. You know, and I'll be honest, until you guys pointed out how bad the score was, I kind of was able to block it out. But now that you pointed it out, I can't block it out when I watch this movie. You can't unhear it. I can't. Yep, I know. And thanks, Ken, for, it hurts. For, for that, because you brought it up in Tootsie, mm-hmm. and now I can't unhear it. But that's Apples and Oranges. That's 82 and 93. It's The score is more set for an 80 score. It sounds old. How this was nominated for an Academy Award for score. There mustn't have been any other movie in 1993. Let's be honest, of course, nobody was going to beat John Williams' 
his score for Schindler's List in 93. There was no way. That's an epic score. It's it's one of those scores that will live forever. To nominate this score for... Alongside it? Alongside of it is a kick in the balls to Schindler's List. (laughs) Here's your competition. Here's your competition. A guy screwing around with a piano. Instead of playing it the right way, he's plucking the strings on the inside and making some of the most annoying sounds that can ever be made out of an instrument. He probably looked at who he was up against to be like, oh, I got this. This is in the bag. He shouldn't have even showed up at the Academy Awards to be put on screen. He should have known he there was no way he was ever going to win this. And I think we've probably touched based on this a little bit, but how well does this movie hold up 28 years later? Mm, it's dated. I don't know. I don't know if it's too dated. I mean... Granted, you don't have cell phones. You have to use the pay phones and, and all that jazz. But, I mean, they are using the internet. Kind you know, of. <laughs> kind They're of. using a database from the I library. I guess it's the internet. The database from the, the only, library. The only thing we didn't get was the beep, 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 the log on to the connecting to the internet sound. Welcome. Yeah. You got mail. Dial up. So you guys think it, it doesn't hold up, but it's not the really the problem here of this movie. You're just watching it with 93 eyes. That's all. Yeah, Yeah, you can't look at it with cell phone technology and everything like that. The tech of the time is not what's hurt the plot of this movie. No. It's this convoluted plan that he ends up having. The issue here, I think, are just things that are forced in. I mean, you even have, at the end, he has to tell somebody how he did it. They have to bring Ed Harris to his house when he's packing his bag, and him and Ed Harris have to go back and forth about the billing fraud because we didn't know what was going on. So the fact that they had to like wrap that up in a nice little bow at the end just told us right there and then that you did a bad job of writing this film. If we can't right. follow along, you have to tell us at the end of the film how yeah. it ended. You had to make the Al Capone reference on why it's got teeth. Right. right. If your main character has to explain his plan at the end of the movie, you did a bad job establishing why he did each step of the plan. And see, and that's another thing. His plan should have been in jeopardy of failing. And Abby has to go in down there and save his plan from just completely falling apart. We never feel that tension. They rely on the fact that he has to scuba dive right. for this all to work. Granted, I understand that his character likes to do that, but the fact that they had to rely on that one key thing, there's just a lot of dumb requirements here for all this to work. Does it work? I guess, yes, it does. He also doesn't seem to know that the mob is coming to Memphis. He has plane ticket to go to Chicago. Good thing Ed Harris told him, hey, the mob's here, so <laughs> you, you might want to stick around and, and not leave. Yeah. How convenient that the crime family was here and that he could stay put. How convenient is that? Didn't bother me in 1993, but 2021, it sure does now. Like you said, if you're sitting down with a bucket of popcorn and you're watching the movie and you don't think about it a whole lot, it's fine. But the moment you start to think about what we're doing is where it, it starts to fall apart. Yeah. You can't start pulling at strings on this movie. Because the moment you start to pull at strings, the whole sweater falls apart. But the problem with that, Ted, is the fact that this movie tries to play off that it's smart. Oh, yes. And that's where the problem with this movie is. First time you see it, you're like, oh, that was pretty cool how they made that happen. But the more you start watching it, the more you realize you're not that smart as you claim to be. This is not a very smart movie. Yeah, and it never really establishes, too, because... All in all, in his plan, he was billing people wrong as well. And it's never established that he's getting immunity from the FBI. So wouldn't he have been charged 
yeah with a crime as well it, and now it makes me think about like when tammy uh shows up with the egg sandwich and she gives him the bag and then he takes that bag that egg sandwich and he goes <laughs> to the restaurant yeah eat that next to her if he was followed wouldn't they say hey that's the lady that delivered him the sandwich and now he's back at the restaurant eating that sandwich with her next to him what what was that couldn't they have met somewhere like secretive, like somewhere other than the deli that he got the sandwich from? I know. Well, and, know. and they do the old spy thriller move of the exchange of uh, briefcases in the <laughs> elevator. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the guy happens to come in, and he of course he, he does. They pick uh, floor six, and he picks floor eight, and then she comes in and picks floor seven. How convenient is that? A trope that has been so overused in movies is to establish a false sense of tension in so many movies throughout the years that it's so overdone, even in 93. And it's done bad here. It's so obvious. When they hit the number on the floors, I just, I was like, why did they go that route? I don't know. It's weird. I don't know if it's three days of the condor weird in the elevator, but it's weird. I liked the dog. That's the other thing. She's leaving him and she gets to take the dog to school. Yeah. What kind of school lets you bring your dog? To... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, at least I saw the dog at recess. So I felt at least I felt like she didn't keep him in the like the car in the that car all day. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we're all pretty much going down the same road here. I'm, unfortunately, it, I think the reviews are going to be uh, probably fairly similar. But um, I'm curious to see what you guys think of this one. Because I will admit, this was one of my favorite Pollock movies 20-some-odd years ago. But it's uh, it's not, not that route anymore. So, Eric, why don't you go ahead and take us to the end here? Why don't you start off with the reviews? He's my director, so let's uh, start the healing. Acting-wise, I think the acting is top-notch. I think Ed Harris, Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman do a, an incredible job. I like the plot of the movie. I think it's an interesting plot. I would have to agree with Ted that the writing it definitely has some real issues. And I'm, I'm pretty sad I haven't read the book yet. I'm, I'm intrigued to read the book and see what the differences are. I think this movie, unfortunately, went way too long at two and a half hours. There's no way it needed to be this long. And there's probably a good 45 minutes they could have cut out and added in more important scenes that made this movie sync together. The score is horrific. It's just one of those movie scores that it's it's hard to put in the words. That's how bad it is. It's just it's the fact that it was nominated for Academy Award is just insane. Just doesn't make any sense. And now that I watch the movie again with that score, I have to literally block it out because it does affect my movie watching. But overall, Ted, you make another good point that the it's an enjoyable movie if you kind of suspend reality and suspend a few things, comparative analysis of it. I don't mind watching it. I watched it three times. And, you know, once you get past the score, it, it's a fun movie. It's not nearly his best movie. It's not any of their best movies, but it's something I would probably watch again if, if it came up. I'm not going to go out of my way to watch it again. Um, maybe if I read the book i might watch the movie again to do a little bit more comparative analysis but overall you know i'm teetering on this one i had a grade when we first started and unfortunately the more we got into this podcast it kind of just creeped its way down just a hair and i am going with a c plus thank you eric what about you ted this movie for me is uh, it's an interesting movie as far as us talking about it 
even I have personally kind of tore it apart a little bit. If you don't think about the movie a lot and you just watch it for its popcorn value, it works that way. It's when you start to pull at the strings and that's where the movie falls apart. I agree wholeheartedly at two hours and 34 minutes. It is at least 45 minutes too long. There is so much that could have been cut out or trimmed down to make it just a little bit tighter. I don't think it was cut very well in that way. There's still too much there. The score, I can't even begin how I feel about the score. It's just abominable. It takes a lot out of the movie because it is so glaring of a misstep for this movie that it's hard to even overlook or not hear it. Ken had mentioned it would be better with no score. He's not far off. (laughs) True. As far as the acting goes here, Eric, you had mentioned that this is not anybody's best movie. That's very true. But I think these actors do as good as they can do with the material that they were given. Because the material that they were given is very thin. There's not a whole lot of substance to a lot of these people. And yet, somebody like David Strathairn, he brings a certain gravitas to the character that him just being there elevates the character to something that it probably shouldn't have been. But so these people do the best that they can do. It is what it is at that point. They're left at the mercy of the writers. My overall grade, and this is so tough to say because I don't mind the movie at all. I won't say I go so far as to enjoy it because the score makes it so that I can barely enjoy it. But I think it's rewatchable. I probably won't rewatch it any time in the near future. So that's where I would land. And this is probably a little harsh. It's a solid C- minus for me. Wow, I did not see that coming. I did not see a C- minus coming from you. But thank you, Ted. For it that. is harsh. I didn't mention this at the beginning of the podcast that I watched this movie so many times on paid cable channels, basically probably from 94, probably well into like the early 2000s. I still think it's an enjoyable film. I agree with Ted. It's a rewatchable film. The score does irritate me, but I'm able to get past it. If you would have told me that before we would do these movies, that Tootsie and The Firm would be almost on equal ground for me, I would laugh at you. Like I said, really enjoyed this movie when it was played on paid cable all the time. The acting is great. I enjoy pretty much all these performances, and I agree with Ted. Uh, They're not given a lot to do. The script doesn't give them the chance to show how wonderful they can be, except for maybe Tom Cruise's part. Gary Busey does a great job with the couple of minutes that he gets. Just love that two-minute performance. But I, I do feel like there is something missing here. And each one of us has mentioned the length of time of this movie, two hours and 34 minutes. You think there would be more substance into the characters with two hours and 34 minutes. I agree with Ted. It's about 45 minutes too long the way that this movie is presented to us. They took a lot of easy way outs, conveniences. It's unfortunate. But again, if you're watching it for the first time, I think you'd enjoy this. I think you would also, though, if you continue to watch it over and over again, it could drive you a little bit mad with the music and with the conveniences that this movie does. Because again, as I stated earlier, this movie tries to tell you that this is a smart thriller. At the end, you're like, wow, that was really interesting. And then you watch it again and realize it wasn't really that interesting. My final grade on this is a B-. I enjoy watching Tom Cruise do his Tom Cruise thing. 
And Tom Cruise is, I think, a very underrated actor. We've actually reviewed a couple of other Tom Cruise movies, and Tom Cruise always seems to deliver in these type of movies. And I think his performance, along with Gary Busey and Gene Hackman, I think these performances, and even Wilford Brimley, even though I make fun of it, he actually does a good job of playing the bad guy. Kudos to him. I'm thinking, Ted, in the book, the Wilford Brimley character probably had a little bit more... uh... A little toughness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Probably younger and probably thinner. <laughs> so, he's not much younger, but he's much more of an evil presence. Mm. Harsh. Yeah. That's where I land on this movie, uh, a B minus 1994, 1995. I would probably be saying at least a solid B, if not more. But that is our last movie that we are going to be doing on Sidney Pollock. But I do want to ask you guys this question. I'll ask Ted this question first. Watching these four movies, has it given you a different look at Sidney Pollock? Have you thought of him as a better director or worse director? Any type of opinions that have come out for you? Sidney Pollock was not somebody who I sought out his movies, but reviewing the four movies. And I think Eric picked a good selection of different types of movies that he's directed. I think we get a little bit of a sense of a lot of different things that he's done. I appreciate him as a director. I liked Three Days of the Condor and The Way We Were, two movies that I hadn't seen prior to doing the podcasts on him. I enjoyed each one of those very much. I think he makes a very enjoyable movie. I think that he makes some, in certain cases, movies that you'll remember. I always will remember our discussions, of course, about The Way We Were and Three Days of the Condor. And of course, I've come to have a new appreciation of Tootsie, having watched it because of the podcast. I have found another movie that I enjoy quite a bit. And I know that I was a little harsh on The Firm, but it's a good movie. I just wish he would have been given more to work with there. At the end of the day, his stock has improved in my eyes. I see why Eric likes him as much as he does. I thoroughly enjoy it. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, if I'm going to go watch other movies on our free time when we're not watching to review, I'm going to go back and probably check out Out of Africa again and a couple of his other movies. So I've come around quite a bit on how I look at Sidney Pollack. At the beginning, we started the four movies we said I said in the spotlight. I always knew him as an actor, and I enjoy him as an actor. I enjoy him tremendously in Tootsie, but I have a deeper appreciation of him as a, as a director as well. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you my take on Sidney Pollack because I want to give Eric the last word on Sidney Pollack since this was his director. What I would say about Sidney Pollack is I think there's a lot of things that I really appreciate about him. To be perfectly honest with you guys, even since our review of Three Days of the Condor, that's the one movie that I've been itching to see again. So I've actually went around from being frustrated with that movie to really starting to enjoy that movie. So that probably does say something maybe about Sidney Pollack is maybe he is somebody that, as we had mentioned with other directors, might need sometimes repeated watches on some movies to really enjoy it. That is not the case with The Firm, though. But and with all the other movies I think that we've looked at, I think that is the case. The one thing I think he can do a little bit more of is have more control of the score. He is responsible for how bad the scores have been on some of these movies. I think the buck stops at the director because he's in charge of making the film. And I think that comes also with the writing. If he says, hey, this writing is not good enough to make this film, that's on him too, because he is responsible for that. So I'm not going to give him passes on that. But overall, I do think Sidney Pollack is a good director. 
I do enjoy the films. Even with Tootsie, even though I was a little harsh on Tootsie, even though I liked it, after I gave my review of that, I went back and said to myself, you know what? I like that movie a little bit more than I actually said during the podcast. That says something probably about the lasting impression of Sidney Pollack. I like him more than I thought I probably would. What about you, Eric? All right. Well, yeah, Sidney Pollack is definitely still one of my favorite directors. And it's funny you guys mentioned Out of Africa because I just watched that a couple days ago. And a little bit of me is is sad that we didn't pick that movie because that it really is an incredible movie. It's a movie unlike Three Days of the Condor. It's a movie that you really only need to watch once. You don't need multiple watches. It's very self-explanatory. The score in that movie is incredible. John Barry did the score on it. It won the Oscar for best score as well. I mean, that thing rolled away with the Oscars in 85, obviously. But the score for that movie is a lot of classical music, and it flows beautifully with the movie, unlike some of the previous scores. And, you know, it's funny you point that out. Sometimes it takes a different point of view to point out something where a movie you've seen numerous times, you almost, if it's a bad score, you almost block it out. You're watching the movie, you don't hear it, you kind of let it go. You guys have kind of brought that to the forefront, and unfortunately, I have to agree with you, they're not great. One of the issues that I have with Sidney Pollack, and this is in review of these movies and in review of our past directors, if we're comparing Sidney Pollack to some of the past directors, one of my issues is I don't think Sidney Pollack in the four movies that we watch, maybe Tootsie would be the one that I wouldn't throw in this one, but I think he needed more directorial control over these movies. He really needed more of an iron fist. He really needed to take more of the writing, more of the control, just taking everything together and really saying, hey, you know what? I'm the director. This is how it's going to be done. And if it doesn't work, it's on me. But when you have too many cooks in the kitchen, when you have a script that's gone through 15 different writers and the end product is, you know, we're sitting here ripping it apart. I mean, there's a lot that's on the director. It really all falls on the director. And as we're analyzing these movies, past directors and Sidney Pollack, it's interesting because we're focusing on the directors. Really, not only are we analyzing the movies and the actors and the cinematography and the scores, but we're really looking at the directorial style of the director and these movies. With Sidney Pollack, I kind of wish that he had more, just more control. I think these would have been better movies as compared to some of our other directors. That's my one take back from it. The movies, I still love these movies. I really do. These are still some of my favorite movies. Yeah, the score in Tootsie is cheesy, but I like it. You know, it's the era. I like it. It fits for the movie. Just analyzing them, there's really not a lot that I can take away from these movies is that I just wish he had more control. I wish he took more charge. That's what I'm looking for. I wish Sidney Pollack took more charge in his directing on these movies. And I think they probably would have been a better product. Other than that, I'm still very happy we did them. I'm happy I picked Sidney Pollack. If I would have changed one thing, I would have went without of Africa, but I don't know which movie I would have dropped. That's the kicker. I picked those movies specifically to have different style movies. I wanted the comedy. I wanted the thriller. I wanted the romantic, sappy movie. And I wanted the political thriller. And I think it represented very well. Well, yeah. thanks, Eric. Thanks for picking out this director. So our next director is going to be my choice, Richard Donner. 
You might know Richard Donner mostly from the Lethal Weapon movies and the first Superman and possibly the second Superman. We will go into detail on that during our spotlight on Richard Donner. But the four movies that we're going to look at for Richard Donner coming up will be The Omen from 1976. Uh, we'll also be looking at 1985's The Goonies. We'll also be looking at 1994's Maverick and 1995's Assassins. So stay tuned for Richard Donner's Spotlight. Ted, where can they find us on Twitter? We can be found on Twitter at, at the movie underscore marquee. Thank you, Ted. And you could also join us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page called The Movie Marquee. We also have an email, themoviemarquee at gmail.com. All right, that's it for us, guys. Any last words? Nope, not this round. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the directors. Thanks for joining us and see you at the movies. Thank you for joining the Movie Marquee. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.